You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. And now we are uh, ready for a live broadcast of The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Now, I'm sure most of you are... Okay, who are listeners to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe? Exactly, exactly. It's obvious. They claim now approximately 120,000 listeners per week. It is the number one skeptic podcast on iTunes among the top five science podcasts with 24 million downloads in the seven years since 2005 when they began. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. You know it, you love it. Um, Right now I'm going to introduce the uh, host and producer of the SGU, and uh, he has a couple of other credits to his resume. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I'm sure he'd be happy to retire on that one. He is an academic clinical neurologist at Yale University. He uh, started the Neurological Blog, which covers news and issues in neuroscience, but also general science, scientific skepticism, philosophy of science, critical thinking, and the intersection of science with the media and society. He contributes every Monday to Skeptic Blog, every Wednesday to Science-Based Medicine, a blog dedicated to issues of science and medicine, and uh, I don't know when the hell he finds the time to sleep. Please welcome to the stage my friend and colleague, Dr. Steve Novella. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. This is your host, Stephen Novella, and this week I am joined by Bob Novella, Rebecca Watson, Jay Novella, Evan Bernstein, So we are live from Nexus 2012, and for our show this year, we have a special guest, the amazing James Randi. So Rebecca, April 28th, 1953. It's a very important day in skeptic history, um, in science history. Of course, you know, for our live audience, this show is going out next week, so that's why we're, we're choosing April 28th. And let me just set the scene for you. The year is 1953. The Korean War is ending. And, of course, the most important topic on Americans' minds is what conjoined twins should wear when it gets chilly. <laughs> Howard C. Boss was just the entrepreneur to come to the rescue. On April 27, 1953, he received a patent for the double overcoat. Now, at the time, single overcoats did exist. However, at that point, no one had ever taken two single overcoats and sewn them together. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, this isn't limited to conjoined twins. It's also perfect for... Because that market's not big enough for him? Well, you know... (laughs) I mean, did he submit this patent? Like, all right, I'm going to sell three, four of these things easy. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But there's room for for growth. There's conjoined twins. There's very obnoxious couples. (laughs) Uh, There's Zaphod Beeblebrock's cosplayers. And, of course, three-legged race participants. <laughs> this day in science history. Yeah. Or Monty Python skits, maybe. It's yeah, true. It's another good one. Mm-hmm. Okay. That was the best you can come up with, by the way, for... <laughs> it's been a busy weekend, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. 
What do these words have in common? I'll read them. Hopefully, presently, decimate, anxious, disinterested, and nauseous. I know exactly what these words have in common. These are, these are words that I like to call pedant catchers. <laughs> pedant bait. Pedant bait. Ah, yes. <laughs> if you right. believe that you are speaking with an English language pedant, you should say something like, man, my football team really got decimated on the field. And then they will immediately say, excuse me, was one out of ten of the team murdered? <laughs> <laughs> What do you mean one out of ten? Well, the original meaning of the word decime, as you can probably guess from the Latin root, uh, is one out of ten. Yeah. yeah. So if you said the city was decimated, you were mean, you're saying one-tenth of the city w- exactly. got destroyed? Yeah. yeah. Right. Whereas well, now we mean it to mean most of the city. Yeah. But why so spe- specific? Who cares? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly right? the point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what's, what's the deal with nauseous, though? Because I, I admit, I've, I've called that on people. Because my understanding was that if you, so you say, I'm nauseous, it means that, not that you feel like throwing up, but looking at you makes other people want to puke. Yes. Which is my... So it's, I, I always tell people it should be nauseated. That's nauseated, because exactly. you're a pedant. Well, okay. <laughs> you just passed the test. That's All right. The, you're Fine, technically but, correct. Nauseous means you induce nausea in others. I believe my, my patients tell me that all the time. I was and you nauseous. agree. <laughs> yes. Yes, you are. But Steve, and you can't say hopefully, like hopefully they'll find the missing kid. Well, hopefully you can. You can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can. Technically, you'll be wrong, except the, the reason why this is an actual news item is because the AP style book, which is the official book of words and the proper way to use words for journalists, or one of, mm-hmm. one of several, they have to update their the proper ways to use words, and they just updated, hopefully, to the way that everybody actually uses it, which is as you just did, like, you know, hopefully we'll have a good show, as opposed to saying, um, I will have a good show, Steve said, hopefully, which is the proper way to use the word. So I'm a trendsetter. <laughs> you can look at it that way. Yeah, it's pretty much because of you. That's... <laughs> right. Presently, presently, I always thought that was a British thing, but apparently that's also a, a, a time thing. Like, what do you mean? Give us an example, Steve. I'll give you an example. So <laughs> you might say, I'll be there presently. No, 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 no. Give us real examples. Let me hear the accent. Let's, let's do it. Oh, you mean a, a British? Yeah. Oh, I'll be there presently. <laughs> Meaning I'll be there soon or, you know, shortly. Um, but people now use it to mean immediately, right now at this right. moment. And so that the meaning has just shifted over time. Um, some uh, uh, word scholars call these words skunked because you just can't use them anymore in, in a way that you, if you, the, the way most people use them is improper and may in fact be misleading. So it's hard to use the word properly. If you use it properly, nobody knows what you mean. Yeah. Um, so disinterested is a good one. I think that's the most skunked word on the list there. Disinterested means objective. It means you are detached no, it doesn't mean uninterested, um, but people use it to mean uninterested, which is a problem because uninterested means uninterested, and there's <laughs> no other word really means exactly what disinterested means. Um, it, does it mean that you're like spaced out? 
No, it means that you <laughs> yeah. it, 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 you don't have an interest in it. You don't have like you're unbiased. The, oh, yeah, you're, you're unbiased, unbiased right. in that you have no. So you're no agnostic to it. I mean, you're like agnostic to the topic. Apathetic. Apathetic. apathetic the word. But, but more than apathetic, you have no interest in it. You have nothing invested in the outcome. That's like being disuninterested. Disuninterested. <laughs> <Got it. laughs> okay. Same thing. <laughs> Somebody call the AP style book. We've got to get this in. Randy, don't you ever decimate me on stage again. No, I'll try not to. Hopefully, you, you won't make me nauseous by sitting next to you. Now, I'm sure you're all anxious for the next news Na- Nauseated. Evan, you know, you're wearing this sports jersey. What's going on here? We are in New York City, and New York City is the professional sports capital of America. Is it not? No. <laughs> It's no, not. Boston. Hello. There's some of you. <laughs> yeah, that, that Chicago. Would be Rebecca, um, you know, in Boston's, you could argue, I'd say it's the second uh, largest sports city in America because they have the second most sports team championships. No other city, though, has seen more championships in team sports than New York. Fifty-five. Now you're sport. including the Yankees, right? Well, of course. I mean, they've got half. <laughs> Jets have one. Now, uh, sports are part of the fabric of the canvas that makes up New York. And the culture of sports and the culture of New York are definitely inseparable, in my opinion. So it should come as no surprise to this audience, especially, that the culture is rife with pseudoscience and illogical practices. For example, sport has a long and storied history of appeal to superstition. The first Olympic Games were a series of athletic competitions held in the honor of Zeus. And priests would offer sacrifices to their gods so that the athletes that were representing their city-states would have some sort of upper hand and advantage over What would they sacrifice? People from the other team. (laughs) (laughs) That's the most effective way of making sure that your city-state is going to be the winner. But it, it comes right up to modern sports, right up to today, and superstitions are abundant. So in baseball, we have Hall of Fame players such as Ted Williams, Boston fans out there. But did you know that Williams only ever used bats constructed from wood that he would go and hand select? And he wanted the narrowest grain in the wood, he said, because he felt it, he felt it helped him hit the ball more cleanly. What evidence there actually was to that? Nobody knows. True story. Ted Williams put his signature on a number of products, and you can purchase a Ted Williams signature home in Florida. Home. Yeah, a friend of mine, his parents, own a Ted Williams signature home. Is it made of finely grained wood? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it has a brain on display. Isn't, isn't that the Ted Williams thing? Wasn't there like a fight over positive, his brain? Right? I, think, I feel like frozen. we talked about that on the show once. I don't remember. Did he? Did Jay? Did, you, did he freeze himself? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Frozen. Speaking of frozen, smart guy. Williams would go through the ritual of bathing his bats in alcohol. He believed that it helped keep his bat cooler in the summertime, and therefore would help him perform at the plate. Actually, he bathed themselves in gin. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I think that was Babe Ruth. Or Mickey Mantle. You screw in the line with it. Um, and then moving on to tennis, we have a superstar Bjorn Borg. And during the Wimbledon tournament, we're not going to Borg... diss Borg. No. <laughs> The board. He would stop shaving. He would wear the same shirt every time through the entire tournament. No, that he would play. no really? washing. No washing. No, goodness, no. Yeah. You don't wash these things. The, 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 uh... So the, the mojo would wash. It's too bad. I really sweat. liked him. I remember growing up watching him. I didn't realize mm-hmm. that he thought that he could wash luck out of a garment. That's pretty ridiculous. And other athletes will not wash their socks during playoff runs or their underwear. But Tide has recently come out with a mojo stay detergent. (laughs) Really effective. In professional football, 
There's such a thing called the Madden curse. This is a form of superstition that states that a pro football player that winds up on the box of Madden football video game series is destined to suffer an injury the next season. Um, well, what are the okay. odds of having an injury if they're not on the cover of <laughs> right. the game? Excellent point. What are the odds of not? Right. But uh, 50% of them, roughly, roughly half of them, have actually had some sort of injury following um, coming up. Um, yeah, they don't the take it to the next thing, though. Like, okay, so a company makes a video game. And they take a picture of a guy and they put it on the, the cover of the game. Like, are there, like, forces, like, spirits? Like, they put this guy on the box. Let's get, get him. him. You know, like, <laughs> what, really, like, what are they thinking? What are, or what are, are other players going after him saying, hey, he's on the cover. Let's get him. Let's get him, right? <laughs> so if you're a pro football player, you know, yeah, it's nice to be on the cover of a box for a game. But at the same time, they don't want to see themselves on the next, on the next one because they think they're next. Mm-hmm. So, but we're not limiting the scope of sports to the United States. We have a gentleman named Barry Fry, who was the manager of Birmingham City in the English Soccer League. And before games, he would go to each of the four corners of the field. You want to guess what he did? Yeah, he marked his territory. Um, he claims to have done this to ward off evil spirits. You sure he wasn't looking for Hoffa? Jimmy Hoffa? He wasn't using the right tool. Yeah. <laughs> tool, though. <laughs> Oh boy! And we know that superstitions, right, are, are purely psychological. They're just a coping mechanism uh, to, for athletes to deal with the pressures to succeed. Uh, athletes want to believe that uh, these habits and rituals do have a positive effect on their performance, when in reality it just comes down to their skills, their physical abilities, and their confidence level. But the world of sports also has devices which claim to enhance player performance, even though there's Little to no evidence suggesting that they do these things. Um, for example, you'd be hard-pressed today to find a Major League Baseball player not wearing one of those brightly colored Phyton titanium necklaces, right? We've got Jester uh, Verlander of the Detroit Tigers, MVP Curtis Granderson, New York Yankees. He just hit three home runs in a game the other night. Uh, Cliff Lee, Cy Young Award winner for the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, these are the spokespeople for this company, and they are out there pitching this brand. Through, the comp- through what the company calls the filled process, P-H-I-L-D, filled process, the titanium is turned into aqua titanium, which is, which is trademark gibberish by They fit, put it in some water. Right. Exactly, right. Okay. I didn't com- know titanium could rust. <laughs> the company claims um, that while they integrate small amounts of this metal directly into the fabric, and these necklaces have healing properties to relieve neck and shoulder pains in, their, in the athletes that wear them. It sounds exactly like power balance. Like what Jay is wearing. Yeah. Oh, yes. it's, a, it's actually a good time. Yeah, yeah, for me yes, to bring a stuff. good thing to introduce this. You've got to know about yeah, this. I have, actually, I have a few for. I'm going to just throw these out. These are uh, power balance bands. And um, it's like JJ, they're placebo bands. Placebo? No, those are those are the fakes. They're exactly like they're, they're exactly like power balance bands. They're made at the same factory. You can go to uh, placebobandstore.com. We're going to have these at our table later today and for fundraising. But the, the fact, the, the joke here is that a friend of ours um, buys these from the manufacturer. They're identical. They even have a, a hologram in them. But this hologram has the letter P for, for a placebo band. They're quite comfortable. And they're a good, you know, this is a good thing. You can, you know, you're at work and your friend's like, oh, that's, no, no, this is actually, you know, it's a starting point for a conversation to yeah. correct people. Now, the thing that they did in Australia, by the way, with one of the power bands that they were selling in Australia the Australian government made them issue refunds, exact refunds plus postage to every customer who bought one of those bands. Why can't we do that in this country? Mm-hmm. I don't understand. Totally agree. 
There was there was a class action suit in California that's going against them. So oh really? Yeah. So they're 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 having international trouble. Richard Saunders, the, the Australian skeptic, that's a colleague of ours, sent us recently sent yes. around a picture of I don't think it was power bands. It was the next brand of the same thing, the same magic bracelet. In the, they like they would they were originally selling for sixty dollars. And he found them in the um, the discount bin for like two bucks mm-hmm. at the uh, at the store. So they, they really have done a good job of, of knocking that industry. They still and, only cost about ten cents. Yes, so right. still, <laughs> quite a good still a margin. good profit margin there. Yeah. And Richard told me that these cost about the equivalent of eighteen cents to have manufactured. Yeah. yeah. Look at the markup from from eighteen cents to what fifty dollars? Fifty, or so? forty, fifty, yeah. sixty. Yeah. 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 And uh, but the Randy, value they have zero. holograms. Oh, I, I forgot. Oh, silly me. So it's the finest also... technology of 1985. <laughs> well, when Space out, age technology. Space age. I, I was enthralled by holograms for about five seconds when they first came out. Oh, yeah, color. Nice. Um, they came out with the, um, the, uh, the guard, like the mouth guard. With the similar, like, I don't know if they have magnets. You talk like about that. that. They have yeah, yeah, we're going to jump into that next. Okay. I like when we accidentally out. set up each other's bits. <laughs> <laughs> it's mouth, like we planned it. Mouth guards, yeah. yeah so do you know anything about that, Evan? We do know a little bit about that. Actually, Steve, uh, you're going to tell us a little bit oh, about yeah, so this, these, uh, So mouth guards, I mean, a lot of sports uh, you know, athletes wear mouth guards to protect their teeth and their facial structures from impacts and injury. But did you know that <laughs> mouth guards also could improve athletic performance? Endurance, strength, balance, whatever. This is all based on neuromuscular dentistry. <laughs> now, Steve, I'm just going to get I, out my wallet right now. Yeah. Here's a blank check. Yeah. Um, how, honestly, how many people in the audience have heard of neuromuscular de- dentistry before I just mentioned it right now? That's that's it's about zero. Would you be surprised to learn that huh. it's been around for 50 years? Huh. 50 years, the pseudoscience has been simmering along in the background, totally under the radar. There's very little written about it, skeptically. Um, so there, there's, and like a lot of these pseudosciences that endure for a long time, there may be a kernel of truth in that for actual dentistry, you know, maybe you should consider not just like the fit of the teeth, but also the, the TMJ, the temporal mandibular joint, and the muscles of the jaw. That's fine. That's sort of the legitimate kernel to neuromuscular dentistry. But then they go beyond that to say, oh, yeah, and these muscles will also control the performance of other muscles in your body. No, they won't. (laughs) That, of course, is based upon applied kinesiology. How many people here have heard of applied kinesiology before? Got to clap. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit more well-known pseudoscience. Did you pseudoscience. just make them clap for applied kinesiology? Yes. <laughs> well, some people, just messing with you. Some people were raising their hands. <laughs> it's audio podcast. You know the whole drill. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that was the, the similar notion of, like, you know, the magical effects from one part of the body to the other. So, that, so you know, hey, if you're going to manufacture mouth guards for sports stars, why not also throw in some magical claims that it's going to improve your performance? And then they do some, you know, crappy in-house studies or they you know, have some, some academic at a university do it, but it's still studies with 10 people, 15 people, way too small. There was one, Evan and I were looking at this one study that was touting a significant improvement in reaction time. To visual stimuli, the improved reaction time was 10 milliseconds. <laughs> Steve, that helps with whack-a-mole. <laughs> yeah, so audio stimuli, audio stimuli Two milliseconds, two thousandths of a second. That's no difference. 
But they, sell, they were selling that as evidence for a, quote-unquote, significant improvement in performance. And Steve, how much do they charge for these sorts of mouth guards if you, if you want the, them? The customized mouth guards, the ones that are supposed to give you the benefit, can cost up to two to $3,000. What? <laughs> yep. What? Wow. That's a good, that's a good scam. Now that's a good bit. You, and yeah. you, you got to realize, <laughs> the people that own that company are just laughing all day. Like, well, Look, another jackass just bought one. Two grand, cha-ching, cha-ching. <laughs> That's real money, man. That's like you can make you can make hundreds of millions of dollars with that, and with the, with the money that the the athletes right. spend on all this garbage. Right. Except in Australia, they'll make you give the money back. I still, I'm 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 appalled that we can't do that in this country. If yeah. they can do it in Australia, we sure as hell can do it here. <laughs> yeah, they're supposed to be behind us, not ahead of us. What's up with that? <laughs> That's that was for Richard. We need Richard Saunders to move here and make it all happen. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm all for that. All right. We talked about the power bands just a little bit before, you know, regarding the placebo effect. Yeah. Certainly, you know, athletes, they just they don't get it. Um, now, sports nonsense is not just limited to devices and superstitions. There is outright crankery and woo that, de- that defies all logic and is just to the point of silliness. Take Novak jo- uh, Djokovic. For example, you know who he is? He's the number one ranked tennis, men's tennis player in the world, winner of five Grand Slam tennis tournaments, three out of four Grand Slams in 2011, which is a remarkable feat. That's only ever happened about a handful of times in history. So what does he credit for his success? Well, in an interview, he credits hard work, his uh, intense endurance training, and the assistance of Dr. Igor Sijicevic, an acupuncturist from Serbia who specializes in something called quantum technologies. Hi, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Now, how does quantum technologies work, you might ask? Well, according to the doctor's website, here's one line. The Einstein paradigm is applied to vibrational medicine sees human beings as networks of complex energy fields that interface with physical cellular systems. Got that? That's just one sentence out of paragraphs of gobbledygook and nonsense that's designed to sound impressive but has no scientific validity so whatsoever. Hard work, training, and magic. And magic. Yeah. <laughs> that's the part of this nutritious Whatever. breakfast right. that's, ploy. That's Randy's yeah. success story. <laughs> <laughs> The number one tennis player in the world. Oh my gosh. Randy the really, play tennis. <laughs> oh. Yeah. oh, I'm sorry. Number two. <laughs> there really should be a law against quantum abuse. That's just <laughs> reprehensible. I call it the so Bob tiny. Law. Huh? It's a quantum Bob penalties. Law. They're very, very Thou shalt not abuse uh, quantum technology. <laughs> um, you guys remember Sidney Crosby, right? Oh, yeah. He's the National Hockey League. Yeah. Uh, he's the MVP, former MVP of the National Hockey League and Stanley Cup champion, right? He's a big, big name for hockey. And he credits his recovery from concussion symptoms to Dr. Ted Carrick. We've spoken about him on the show before. Chiropractic he, neurologist. His healing brand is called chiropractic dentist. neurology. Yep. Yeah, in the Boy. pattern there, right? Yep, yep. What is, I don't even know what that is. What yeah, is right. It? It's, it's just pseudoscience applied to, you know, uh, with a neurological theme, you know, created by a couple of chiropractors. It is add neuro to a previously yeah. existing pseudoscience. Yeah, but what does he do? <laughs> like, what does he do to you? All right, so for example, like one thing he says, um, he could tell what your brain function is like by the blind spots on your eyes, which is not true. And then he adjusts your neck and your blind spot gets better. So your brain got better. That's what it is. It's just pure nonsense. But are people going, I have blind spots? No, they're saying I have weakness. He said, well, let me see. Oh, yeah, I can see that your blind spot's bigger on the left side than the right side. Let me adjust that. Oh, all better. 
That's what it is. <laughs> Sidney suffered his injury um, you know, over, over a year ago, and he went to Carrick over last summer to get treatments, and he was getting ready to come back to the league and everything, and actually did come back for a bit, but then the symptoms came back. He had to step out again, right? So the treatment, whatever, for whatever, it didn't work. So what does he do? He goes back to Dr. Carrick again, and he's in sessions with him again. All right. So, thank so, you, Evan. That's I'm it. Shocked, good, Evan. shocked that there is superstition in sports. Superstition, mm-hmm. nonsense. Another point here that you have to deal with, though, is perhaps these sports figures are not convinced that the thing works, but they collect some loot oh, yeah. for endorsing oh, yeah. it. Oh, no doubt about it. Yeah, they, they, yeah. Sure, they sure. And that do. might be their only <laughs> motive. We don't know. Well, I, I think one of the other motives for these athletes is that they um, they obviously don't know the science be, behind what they're doing. But the other thing is, is that they see their counterparts and they see their fellow athletes doing it. They feel they're so strongly about having every little edge that they can possibly get. They don't want their competition having that little slight edge over them. They want to be. They want to have the power band. They want to have the fighting necklace. They want to go to the chiropractic neurology. Yeah. Neuro, neuro, um, neurologist yeah. and they Randy's right and, and, um, like Steve and I were we were researching something recently remember we were laughing at like the the uh, the professional athletes were giving yeah. comments right and it was so marketing canned like first off that guy did not say that somebody yeah. sitting in an office yeah, yeah. wrote that like right. I love using my blah 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 when I'm playing tennis it's wonderful like that you know the athlete doesn't talk that way the guy's like a surfer dude and he's yeah. like you know it's not happening <laughs> Right. All right, so Bob, um, <clears throat> we have yet another crazy scheme to protect the Earth from rogue asteroids that are going to destroy us. It doesn't sound so crazy. Um, Does it involve Bruce Willis? That's again? all I want to know. Oh, my God. It might. It stealing, might. We're stealing my joke. Uh, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> um, supercomputer simulations of a, of a one megaton blast have, are showing that actually using a bomb like that on the surface of an asteroid actually might be a viable option for, you know, preventing uh, the destruction of, if not the Earth, a civilization of an asteroid that was, that's relatively close. And doing research for this uh, item, it makes me think of how, why is it so much fun to contemplate the potential future destruction of the Earth? You know, it's kind of fun to think about it, right? It's like, why? Because you're a psychopath? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. That, that's one that. hypothesis. Um, so... Because so you think you're going to be the one in a billion survivors, that's why. No, no, no. Or he's going to be frozen deep no. underground. <laughs> no, the scenarios I contemplate, Your brain no, will be nobody an survives. Nobody yeah, survives. They, so they set off the nuke, and then it pushes it no, out it, of the it, it does, No, it doesn't. Not quite. That's not, that's not the idea. It just off the orbit. We're waiting for you to tell us what the hell happens here. Come on. Well, <laughs> I've got a build-up here. Just, you know, it'll be, okay, it'll, right. you'll enjoy Randy it. Randy and I will pipe down. You, you'll enjoy yeah, it. Go ahead. Here we go. So I like thinking about all the different ways that the Earth can be destroyed. One of, them, one of my favorites is a gamma ray burst, which is a lot of fun to think about. Uh, this is a, a super, some certain types of supernovae uh, focus a lot, all, most of their, a lot of their explosive energy into this, this nasty collimated laser-like beam of death that could fry the Earth like from 6,000 light years away. Uh, they're, that they're, is fun. Yeah, isn't that just funny to think about that? I never or, thought about, or how about it like this one? that. Rebecca, how about this one? I just recently thought of this. A supermassive black hole entering our solar system. You know, what would happen? You it's, just thought of that. Oh, it's really cool. <laughs> somebody oh, somebody gonna... should write a book about all the different ways in which the Earth I've been, could be I've been trying destroyed. to get Phil to write one, but he, he's blown me off. Um, so, yeah, there's lots of ways that the Earth, can, that the Earth or our civilization can be destroyed. Um, and the bad thing about that is not the fact that, you know, of course we're all going to die, but... The real problem is that we can't do anything about it. Even if we had Star Trek technology, it would be hard to really protect the Earth, unless, of course, you had Spock and Data helping you out. But, 
There are scenarios what that... What goes through your head as you're lying in bed at night? Is this what it is? It's, I thought of another way the world could end. No. Although if Spock was there... <laughs> what would Spock Rebecca, do? Rebecca, if Spock were there. <laughs> so there are, of course, scenarios that we can deal with. That we could actually do something. And that is the asteroid or cometary impacts. And some of the ideas, some of the, some of the schemes that people have are interesting. Like using a spaceship as a gravity tug. Just letting gravity change the, uh, you know, the trajectory that would destroy the Earth to a more benign trajectory. So that, they park it right next to the yeah. asteroid, and it just needs to push yeah, it just Yeah, just a little, little nudge. It's a little more complicated than just parking it, but... Uh, uh, it's like parallel yeah, parking. Just using gravity. It's very difficult. Or how about... You just, this one was cool. Using laser beams to, uh, to heat up one side of the asteroid and letting that energy... Change the orbit of the asteroid. That's well, another, it that's another gas op- or something? Huh? Some, Ga- yeah. Is that about gas? Yeah. Because I the, think I can help if they need gas. Oh, yeah, you can. The problem with that, all of those ideas, though, is that you need. Thank you. Thank you. Please don't encourage him. I know. Thank you. I'm glad you're sitting over there. You need lots of time. It's a lot of these ideas, you need lots of time, years to plan and build and deploy. Uh, but what if, you know, you, what if you find out, well, we got five months and this mountain is going to hit the earth. What are we going to do? We have sex the whole time. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's one way to deal with it. A lot of people say, though, uh, just nuke it. Just nuke it out of existence. And that's, it's fun to think about that. But for so a hopefully year, they'll be able to decimate it. <laughs> no, you want to... Yeah, I'm trying. That's a decimate it ten times, though, to be really <laughs> thorough. Um, <laughs> Where was I, man? So, Bob, Bob, but we've, we've always been told that you can't just blow yes. up an asteroid. Thanks. Because now you're going to have thousands of little asteroids that are going to rain down on the Earth and cause even more destruction. Are you telling me that Phil has been lying to me all these years? I don't, I don't know. Are you, are you calling you, Phil a filthy no, liar? No, I'm not, I'm not going to. No, that's just, hey, science changes, science advances. The other option is that you blow it up and it just kind of like gravitationally recollapses and you've got an asteroid. So... For years, that's what I thought anyway, that you, nukes won't do it if it's really close. But according to Robert Weaver, um, he's, a, he's a scientist at the Los Alamos National Laboratory. He's been running these interesting supercomputer simulations on a, uh, a 32,000 processor supercomputer, Cielo, I think it's called. And um, he's, come, he's made some interesting discoveries, I think. It, it makes me a little bit more confident about, about actually pulling off the scenario. He, he based his uh, simulations on the, uh, what's the name of that asteroid? Itakaru um, yeah, asteroid, which is like a half a kilometer big asteroid that actually, it's not like a, one big rock. It's actually a conglomeration of lots of rocks that are loosely held together gravitationally. And he ran his simulations, and he discovered that you don't, one thing he discovered, you don't need to send Bruce Willis to this thing and dig a deep hole and stick it in the middle to blow it up. That would work, at least according to his sim, uh, simulations, you could, just, you could just put the nuke on the outside. It's called a contact burst. If it explodes just on the surface somewhere, that would be enough, that would be enough to disrupt, to disrupt the, um, the asteroid all the way through. It's, all this kinetic energy would just transfer from rock to rock to rock, and eventually it would uh, affect the whole thing. And the other interesting thing is that it would impart enough energy so that it, it would reach its escape velocity. So this thing would disperse and not recoalesce, apparently. And um, so that's good. So he thinks that you could actually disperse something as big as a half a mile with just one megaton, with one megaton. Bomb. And then least, each piece would, would, since it's its trajectory would be changed enough that they probably will miss the Earth. Is that the, right. is that the well, idea? Well, the thing it still needs. Now he didn't go into any detail. I, I'm not aware of it. 
obviously, if this thing was closer than, say, the moon, you're just not going to have enough time. But if you get to it relatively quickly enough, it would disperse enough or evaporate enough so that the Earth would be out of danger. That's what his simulations are saying. Bob, you know what bothers me? Well, the, uh, the idea that, remember that, uh, what was it, some, some type of thing that was in low Earth orbit, they didn't know when it was going to re-enter the Earth? Yeah. The Earth, you know. Skylab? Right, whatever. No, 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 very recently, like within uh, the past the six months. The Russian one. Yeah, uh, I think it was one of the right. Russian ones that yeah. was coming back in. Yeah, yeah. I remember, they, they couldn't predict something that was going around the Earth when it was going to come back in. This really sounds like, I don't think they know what they're talking about. I think it's really dangerous. Well, I think they can pretty well predict it, but the fear I have, knowing NASA and some of the wee mistakes that they make every now and then. I can just see them launching from Cape Canaveral. They, they do a countdown, the whole business, and, and they've got a bomb on there that's going to, to explode when it gets close enough to the asteroid, okay? And they fire it, up they go. And the project manager turns and says, did you light the fuse? <laughs> what? Oh, I forgot. It just worries me that they, they would send something, maybe it would take a year, two years, five years for it to get out there. Yeah. And then they're hoping, okay, it's going to blow it up and it's going to work and we can predict that stuff really no. well. No, no, they, they can also change it in orbit. I, I, I'm sure they would have some arrangement to do that. Steer a little bit to the left there. Yeah. It's probably easier to predict something that's out in space rather than something that has the drag of, lo of low Earth orbit atmosphere. Oh, yeah. So right. I think they could probably and predict it pretty well. Don't forget, this is a method of last resort, and it's just yeah. nice to know that we possibly have an option when it's like so close that It'd we, be can't, worth do, a try, we right? can't do right. We can't do anything else. And don't forget, I mean, this is a specific type and size of asteroid that he ran these simulations on. He's going to run some more on bigger and bigger asteroids. Eventually, he wants to do a simulation of the, the behemoth six-mile asteroid that you know that ended the dinosaur reign millions of years it ago. It didn't necessarily end the dinosaur reign. Well, uh, <laughs> on the episode that will be airing today, I believe we discuss the the serious scientific theory that suggests that there might be hyper-evolved space dinosaurs. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Super advanced alien space dinosaurs. Right. Yeah, roving the universe. It's very well, I mean, exciting. What's, what's better research. than that? Now, Rebecca, yeah, they, you should they, make them they, on they new wear mascots. helmets, right? Yeah, they have the well, helmet with the the ray guns in their tiny little hands. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's move on because, I, I, Rebecca, I need to know what is in this picture. Oh, yeah, this is really exciting. I mean, well, it's, it's obvious, though. It's really, oh, yeah. it's obvious what it is. That is the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> I, I pictured him bigger. For, for our <laughs> listeners at home, it looks kind of like a smear. It's a smear on a, that's, that's a cell phone picture of a sonar display it was taken by a captain of a boat on Loch Ness. He was... Captain uh, of the Valdez. He, he, was, he was tooling around and uh, checking his sonar. And he got really excited when he started to see this really massive thing showing up on his sonar. And he pointed out that there's nothing known to be this big in Loch Ness. Uh, there are seals, for instance, but nothing quite this big. This, I should mention, was published in the venerable journal, The Daily Mail. <laughs> Which is appropriate for today, actually, because today is the anniversary of the, publish, uh, the Daily Mail publishing the surgeon's photo, which is the famous fuzzy picture of the Loch Ness Monster. Right. Um, and, and, you know, eventually someone came forward and said that he was part of a hoax, and the hoax was actually on the Daily Mail because these guys hated the Daily Mail even way back then. <laughs> and <laughs> wasn't that a, was that a deathbed confession? 
Remember, it might have remembering been. that? Yeah. Um, so, and today, by the way, tw- today is April 21st. Yeah. Not the day this show goes out. Right. Yeah, sorry. That's right. Uh, so, <laughs> so, yeah, it's appropriate, though, that it's the Daily Mail that is staying on top of this story. Um, <laughs> so, sure enough, there's, there's, this, there's this sonar picture of what can only be described as the Loch Ness Monster. Um, according to the Daily Mail, Steve Feltham a full-time Loch Ness monster hunter. That, that's job busy, security. Busy, busy, busy. Yeah. <laughs> True story, my guidance counselor in high school <laughs> said, you're either going to be a professional podcaster or a Loch Ness monster hunter. How does he get uh, paid? How does he live? How does he eat? I don't, I don't know. Probably writes books. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, there's probably a big market for him. How so people... Just don't get tired of this crap. Like, do we have to talk about the Loch Ness monster? I'm not. Jay, dumb- look at the picture. <laughs> Science. Why don't you make up Jay? something new. Like, really, we got to go back to Loch Ness. Like- this is the greatest cryptozoological discovery since since Yeti corn. I don't. All right. So here's my question. Very serious question. Yes. So you know, like with um, with Bigfoot, Sasquatch. I know. Every time somebody presents this blurry, fuzzy, you know, blob at the, in the distance, you know, we we came up with the term blob squatch. To refer to that. <laughs> so, so what's the equivalent of blob squatch for the Loch Ness ma- monster? Ooh, that's good. You're putting me on the spot, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, quick, be, be ready. Uh, I, uh, we'll, we'll let the audience think about that. All right, me. well, so here's what Steve Felton, full-time Loch Ness monster hunter, said. There are no animals in the loch as big as the image here. The biggest thing we see are seals, which are nothing compared to this. It's very exciting and the best evidence we have had in donkey's ears, which is apparently a thing they say. What? Uh, really? In what was that? There is usually a mundane explanation, yet no one has come up with one for this, which is funny because buried in the article is an explanation for this. <laughs> and it's quite mundane. Uh, first of all, the interesting thing about sonar is that that is not one still image of what is happening under the water. That's actually uh, the boat moving along the water and taking an image every second. So it's, that does not demonstrate width. That's just a blob and that was following along the boat. Blah, 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 blah. So that could be... If it is something, it could be something swimming with the boat, and it just keeps yeah. bouncing off. Yeah, it could, it could just be something following the boat. Or, according to Dr. Simon Boxel from the National Oceanography Center in Southampton, this picture is built up slowly as the boat moves, and I'm paraphrasing, it's probably algae. <laughs> it's, <laughs> uh, he, he pointed out that you can get great masses of algae that are strung along, and the organisms that feed on the algae can often show up on sonar. Hmm. But it's probably the Loch Ness Monster. Right, right, right. We had some confusion here about what donkey's ears means. Uh, would someone like to explain how, how that expression, what, what it means, where take, it comes take, from? Take it away, sir. Got no idea. In, in the age of a donkey. Yeah. Uh, how long do donkeys live? Anyone know? Six years. Six years. You got, you got that from the Britannica, no I doubt. I just made it up. <laughs> I have no idea. Because they discontinued the Britannica, so that knowledge is probably old now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I gave away my Encyclopedia Britannica, 24 volumes of it, the day before they discontinued printing the thing, and now it's an antique. I want it back. <laughs> That's all there is to it. We'll just print off Wikipedia for you. It's just as good. Okay, thanks. <laughs> all right. Um, does anybody know what this is, this next picture? I do. DNA. Bob does. This is a picture of Ice Cube, not the rapper, right. 
IceCube is a neutrino detector in Antarctica. Um, what's actually really cool is that the neutrino detector is really Antarctica itself. It's, it's the ice. Neutrinos are those phantom-like uh, particles that do not travel faster than the speed of light, but they do travel pretty close. close. Um, and occasionally uh, traveling through you know, a glacier of ice, they will, they will hit an actual molecule of ice and kick out a photon. And uh, so what scientists have done is that they've they, uh, drilled these long, deep holes through the ice, and then they put like beads on a string of, of photon detectors down into those holes. And so they are there to detect the photons that are the result of the neutrinos. So the, the glacier plus the detectors makes the neutrino detector. Uh, the reason why we're talking about that is because the um, data from IceCube was just used to test a hypothesis about what causes high-energy um, cosmic rays. Cosmic rays are, you know, just they are particles streaming through space that you know are constantly bathing the Earth. Some of them are so high energy that astronomers are not really sure what process in the universe could be producing them. They're just really, really high energy. One of the leading hypotheses was that they were created in gamma ray bursts. Gamma ray bursts are perhaps the highest energy um, events that happen in the universe. One gamma ray burst will put out as more energy than our sun will put out in its entire lifetime. It's a lot of energy. So they said, okay, that's a high-energy event. Gamma, uh, cosmic rays, a high-energy cosmic rays are really high energy. Maybe that's what produced them. So they, 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 the theoretical physicists figured out that if that's the case, if that process of gamma ray bursts is producing these high-energy cosmic rays, they should also be producing a pulse of neutrinos. So we have data telling, you know, we, now we've been observing uh, the gamma ray bursts, so they said, well, let's go back and look at the ice cube data and see if we're seeing pulses of neutrinos every time there's a gamma ray burst. A pulse of neutrinos, by the way, would be about eight. Eight neutrinos detected by the detector, obviously for the gazillion that's produced, streaming through the Earth. About eight of them, they predicted, would have kicked off photons and that that detector should be seeing them. So they looked at the data and no pulses of neutrinos. So that is not consistent with the current theories about what we should see if gamma ray bursts are the source of high-energy cosmic rays. So if you believe that whole chain of argument, then they're probably not the source of high-energy cosmic rays. Steve, I can explain this. Yeah, okay. The second one from the right is clearly the Loch Ness Monster. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, look at it. It's it's just as good a picture of of Nessie as the the sonar. It is, absolutely. Right. So the, the alternate hypothesis is that they're produced by massive black holes. Colliding black holes, maybe? In the middle of galaxies. They said oh, active. The super, like massive, active, super black super holes in the middle of galaxies are producing these high-energy cosmic rays. So I guess we have to figure out a way to test that hypothesis like this. This is certainly not the last word on the high-energy cosmic ray hubbub, but um, it's always interesting when you, know, you, you observe a piece of data that completely you know, blows a theory out of the water. Um, Steve, I have, a, yeah. I have a question. Sure. Could you tell me what, maybe in terms of percentage or odds, what are the chances that these high-energy cosmic rays are in some way caused by alien space dinosaurs? Do these, first of all, are these alien space dinosaurs advanced? Hyper-advanced. Hyper-advanced. And do they have ray guns? Wait, hyper-advanced tiny, or tiny ray guns. Do they have tiny ray guns? <laughs> 
So, so how can we test the, the, that hypothesis? The super advanced alien dinosaurs with tiny ray guns. What do I look like? A paleo <laughs> astrophysicist? <laughs> no, see, there was a wonderful project at the New York World's Fair many years ago. I worked at the fair for General Cigar, of all places, uh, doing a magic show on behalf yeah. of Mark Wilson at that time. So I got around a lot in that fair. There was a, <clears throat> a wonderful thing, I believe, at the General Electric Pavilion, where they had slabs of lead about so thick like this in a big cube. Uh, in between were sealed a mixture of argon and neon mm -hmm. and high voltage on either end of this machinery. And every now and then, as you'd go by the thing, you'd... you'd you'd hear a crackling noise. They had it amplified in yes. the speaker, of course, and it went like this, and you would see a cosmic ray coming in cool. on its own, yeah. no direction, no, no invitation, nothing, <laughs> and it would go through the first one and then spread out and mm. produce this cascade cool. of sparks. That's the kind of thing that really gets kids. I, I, I wasn't a kid at the time, but, uh, well, I still am a bit. But uh, that's the kind of thing, if we had that, in some colleges, a model of that sort of thing, showing kids that they're standing in the middle of cosmic rays that are coming in at them and passing through their bodies and not producing sparks, I hope. But this Cancer machine, occasionally. Yeah. It's wonderful just to show every now and then, every two or three minutes, you hear this wonderful thing, one cosmic ray that's been out there for, who knows, a long time, I would say, coming in and entering the top of this machine and displaying itself like that. That's what gets kids and asks and gets them to ask questions. How did that happen? Oh, let me tell you how it happened. <laughs> that's an opportunity that we don't often get. Yeah, yeah. that's very cool. And educating kids, this, is, this should be one of our major priorities. The, the standards of education in the United States of America, I'm highly embarrassed by that. Right, right. Just incredibly right. bad. And we're supposed to be the leading nation in the world, yes. Yeah, Statue of Liberty, the whole thing. Yeah, but uh, what about the state of our educational system? It is distressing, yeah. and it should be distressing to all of us. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry, what was that? I want to quickie with Bob. Oh, boy. <laughs> Bob, the audience has made a demand. Well, let's see. We queued up for that? Ah, what do you know? Excellent. <laughs> good timing. That's really good timing. <laughs> this is actually, well, is this the actual Enterprise or is it just a I generic? Okay, this is, uh, this is the, uh, you know, the, the shuttle on top of a 747. This is how they, you know, the, the shuttles may have been uh, grounded. They're not, they're not undergoing powered flight anymore, but they are getting shuttled around uh, on these 747s. And actually, in two days, the, the, uh, the test shuttle Enterprise is going to fly around the New York metropolitan area and land at JFK. I think the last I heard was between 9.30 and 11.30 in the morning on Monday. So if you're around, check it out, because I'm be kind of bummed I'm busy, because I'd love to see that. Imagine seeing this thing land at JFK. They canceled it? Yeah. Oh, What's that? Weather? Weather? Weather. Oh. They delayed it. Okay. All right. Never mind. Thanks for the update. <laughs> no, it, it's interesting, though, because there's lots of restrictions on, on the, flying this thing. It's, it's called the Shuttle Carrier Aircraft, the SCA, these, seven, these 747s. And they're, they're really restricted. They've got to fly. I don't think they can fly higher than 15,000 feet, so they really can't fly too high. And they actually have aircraft that fly, I think, 100 miles or whatever in front of it, clearing the weather. So it's very, very 
it's very, very tough to, to get this thing from point A to point B because there's lots of restrictions. But, um, I've been, but I've been wondering about it. I mean, we've all seen these images for years, right, about here's the orbiter on top of the 747, and you kind of take it for granted, but it's really the ultimate piggyback of all time. It's really a fascinating topic. So I, I, I dived into it a little bit, and one of the questions I had was, well, why a 747? Why not just use something like a, a Lockheed C-5, which is this gargantuan uh, military cargo jet that can probably transport the Empire State Building. It's just so big and strong, it, it really couldn't. But it seems like it can. Why not pick a C-5? Why a 747? And there's actually a couple good reasons for that. The, the wings on the C-5 were too high. And if, it, if it's too high and the wings, I guess, of the orbiter are too close to it, that's going to be a problem. And the other problem was that the Air Force wouldn't sell NASA a C-5. Like, no, you can't, you can't own that. That's ours. <laughs> and, but you can buy a 747 outright. So that's what NASA did. They bought two of them. They've got two of them. And they, they gutted it. If you see the inside of it, uh, it's completely gutted. There's no, of course, there's no chairs. They, they want to, you know, make it as light as possible because you're carrying an orbiter on the back of it. So they beefed up the avionics, the engine. They, you know, they, made, they made it stronger. And, um, and what else? They, Can you uh, ride inside the orbiter? Like, is that first Oh, my God. Yeah. I was thinking of that, too. Like, could that you imagine, really cool. like, being in the cockpit while this is going on? <laughs> yeah, like, pretending awesome. you're flying it. <laughs> <laughs> Look at me. Talk about... I mean, I would get in costume. I would be like, we're, we're, we're going on a space adventure today. Houston, we have a problem. Ah. I don't even think Obama could get clearance for that. I mean, that, I mean nobody's, nobody's doing that. And, and there's not many more opportunities because there's only a few more. This is actually, after it lands in JFK, it's gonna, they're going to put it on a barge and float it to the Intrepid Museum. And uh, let's see, some of the things I looked up was how much fuel does something like this use? Uh, if you looked at these 747s, it's like 20,000 gallons per hour of fuel. But with the orbiter on it, it's, it's double that. It's 40,000 pounds of fuel, which I calculated if, uh, if a jet ran on unleaded gas, which it doesn't, it would cost $30,000 an hour to run. Uh, for jet fuel, how much more expensive is jet fuel? I don't know, but it's probably a lot more expensive than that. Also, I was wondering, well, how does, how does a 747 handle with an orbiter on its back? And so I, I read about, I read some of the quotes from some of the pilots, and they um, they said that it surprisingly doesn't, it handles very similarly, except for a few different things. Um, apparently, when you're when you're flying the 747, there's a lot of lot of noise and banging because the the wake from the back of the shuttle is uh, is hitting the, the rear stabilizer of the 747, so it's kind of it causes the shaking. And a couple other things that you might that you would probably guess, it takes a long time to take off. You're just rolling on that on that. Uh, on the uh, the uh, runway for a long time before it takes off, and one of the pilots said, "You got to take turns very, very carefully because you've got all this weight." But otherwise, it it uh, he said it it performs very similarly to a, just a, a regular 747. Right. That was a little bit surprising. So um, when's it going to be in the Intrepid Museum? It's well now I have no idea. Know. It was supposed yeah. to be Monday was going to land at JFK, so now I'm no, not sure. Indefinite. I'm not right. sure what's going to happen. Um, oh, a couple little tidbits that were funny. It, it, it I wish takes... we had time for them, because we have, we're moving on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Your quickie was becoming hey, a long Jay, we're going to... Uh... Oh, that's right. It was a quickie. So we're going to the... skip the prank. Oh, do you guys want to hear the prank? Yes. Go ahead, do it. Wait, right. I got to finish. I got to finish. This, this has been thing. your quickie with Bob. I hope it was good for you, too. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. You, can't, you can't not do this. Really? Really? I know. All right. Very quickly, I pranked Steve about, I don't know, 10 years ago. Here it is. Good setup. <laughs> Hello? What's up? Hello, how are you today? Beautiful, f***ing beautiful. I'm Cleo. 
You have a question for Cleo? Um, sure. Let's see. Will my brother Jay ever get a f***ing life? <laughs> All right, that's it. I used the soundboard. I pranked everybody. I pranked like 50 people that day. It was awesome. <laughs> Jay with a Chloe soundboard, right? Yeah. Right. I All right, Cleo. Cleo. Lady, Lady Cleo. 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 Is it Chloe? Chloe. <laughs> Cleo. Chloe. <laughs> Cleo, Chloe, whatever. <laughs> All right, we have a, a new SGU video we're going to play right now. Hey, Stephen Jay here. So at this point in the live Nexus show, we premiered the new SGU video. The name of the video is Passing Away. And we made a parody on people who claim to channel the dead. And once you see it, you'll get a a distinct idea of who we may be making fun of in this video. Yeah, we don't want to give any spoilers, so we're not going to tell you what it's about, but it's 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 pretty funny take on the whole channeling psychic medium thing. So do us a favor, go to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash the skeptics guide. That's our channel. And it'll be the top video in there called Passing Away. Take a look at it, drop us some comments. And if you really like it, we'd really appreciate it if you actually threw us a donation to help future efforts on making new videos. And we will be showing a video at TAM, by the way. That's right. All right, well, back to Nexus. It's time for Science or Fiction. Um, so we're going to do a, this is a, I think it's the last thing we're going to have time to do. So I'd like to do uh, science or fiction during live shows. The way we're going to work this, I'm going to read the items, and then we'll poll the audience. We'll do a very quick round to see which one uh, these guys think are the fiction, and then we'll see what they had, if they had an influence on you guys. Okay, so here they are. Remember, two of these are real. One is fiction. Item number one, a hen in Sri Lanka has given birth to a live chick fully formed and healthy. And number two, scientists report successfully treating neuronal hearing loss in a trial using stem cell therapy. And item number three, the most accurate study so far of the motion of stars near our sun find no evidence of dark matter in our vicinity contradicting current models. Got that? All right, stars so... Near our sun. Yeah, in the vicinity of our, of our sun. You know, in, the, the, in our the, galaxy? Or? Yeah, like 100 oh, okay. light years or so around our sun. Yeah. Yeah, that's, Not uh, in our solar system, but yeah. I wouldn't call that near. but uh, <laughs> On galactic <laughs> scales, on gal- astronomers, that to astronomers that's near because everything else is really, really far. Yeah. I've heard. <laughs> All right, Bob, go. Start over that end first. Come on. No. Are we going to pull the audience first? Yeah. Yes, that's right. I'm sorry. Thank you. So, <laughs> thank you, Rebecca. Thank All you, right. God. So, if you think number one about the hen laying, uh, giving birth to a live chick is the fiction, applaud. If you think using stem cells to cure hearing loss is the fiction, applaud. And if you think a study of stars calls dark matter into question is the fiction, applaud. You guys, that was not helpful. Nice even spread, nice even spread. Bob, what do you think? Oh, I don't know. Uh. <laughs> Bob doesn't know. Bob, consider this a quickie with Bob. <laughs> you actually decimate that and then you're good. <laughs> okay. All right. I have a, the fully, the live chick. 
Yeah, I can kind of see. I don't know something happening to the to the egg, but I can't see the chick actually surviving uh, in that scenario and then being kind of eject, ejected in any uh, fully formed and healthy way. Uh, I've got, so I've got a problem with that one. Let's see the second one: neuronal hearing loss using stem cells. Yeah, uh, I could see that. I'm kind of surprised I didn't hear about it. That would be awesome if that's true. I'm not I'm not sure what to think about that one. The third one. I don't know, I, I think even 100 light years, it just might not be enough real estate to, to really get a, a real read on the amount of dark matter in our, in our vicinity. I think you need to go, go a little bit bigger scale to really get a feel for how much there is. Um, yeah, all right, I'm just going to go with the egg. I just don't see the chick actually surviving, surviving that. All right. See, Rebecca? I was pretty sure that one was true because I do believe that this is the end times, and yeah. <laughs> that is one of the signs. I didn't think of that. <laughs> Damn. Uh, and I, I believe the dark matter one um, because dark matter is um, magic and fiction. Uh, so, no, I don't know, uh, but I am pretty sure that that's that's correct. Which just leaves the stem cell one. I don't, I don't really have anything. I don't have a good reason for doubting it, but I think it sounds too tidy. It sounds. Too true, so I'm going to say it's false. Okay, Randy, what do you think? I don't care about number one and number three. I'm not involved personally. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, number you don't like d- chicks, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we'll get into that later. Okay, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk. But uh, I just interested. <laughs> I, I number two. I, I I really hope that item number two is real. Because what? Would you, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I hope that item number two is real. I don't know, but about number one, number three, eh. All right, Jay. Um, I have to admit, I'm not a hundred percent sure how how uh, eggs get fertilized. I'm not, I'm sure. I can tell oh, you the whole. Thing. That's a long conversation, Jay. No, I know, but I'm not. All right. Uh, Let's start with the basics, Jay. So. <laughs> I you mean, sure, like picture, the, right? the, the hen, the egg cracks open, it's, you know, the egg's in there too long, maybe it stayed in there too long or whatever, so sure, I can believe that one. The second one, sure, why not? You know, stem cells could do it. And, and the last one I have no clue on, so I'll pick number three as the fake. The dark matter. Right. Okay, Evan? Uh, it was fully formed, healthy, and delicious, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> I have a feeling that one's right, and I also have a feeling that the stem cell one uh, is correct as well. Join I don't, me. Th- yeah, I think I'm going to join you, Jay. Um, Dark matter in our vicinity. Yeah, I, th- I thought I could have sworn we had some dark matter closer than this. I, I thought I saw something. It's got to be around, around out there. I was yeah. looking at the stars last night. I'll say, go with Jay. Yep. Jay was dark. Uh, dark. Matter. Yes. Matter. Okay. Fiction. All right. All right. All right. So they were kind of all over the place too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So I don't know that we need to pull the audience again. Let's just go to the answers. Um, so I'll take them in order. Item number one: A hen in Sri Lanka has given birth to a live chick, fully formed and healthy. That one, who thought, here thought that one was the fiction? I don't know. Bob? That one <laughs> is science. Wow. Crap. Mm-hmm. Prepare for the end times. Yep. The, uh, essentially oh. what happened was the egg stayed inside the chicken, and the, uh, the chick hatched inside the chicken, yeah. Yeah. and then was given birth to live and healthy, but the, the, the mother dead. Oh. Oh, no. Yeah. I have, an, I have an idea, a suspicion. As, as a sleight-of-hand artist, it would be very easy to go in there, grab the egg, and put another chick in there, and walk away. 
As an alternate theory. As an alternate theory. And the chick would never tell. Right, right, right. <laughs> That's why so, the chicken died. No witnesses. No witnesses. <laughs> so the moral here is don't choke the chicken. Uh, you encouraged him. You encouraged him. It's your fault. <laughs> I said right. this before. I don't hit on all of them. I, my job is to throw them out there and see how they roll. That's right. All right, number two. Scientists report successfully treating uh, neuronal hearing loss in a trial using stem cell therapy. Um, does anyone think, who thinks this one is the fiction? Me. And, 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 and a few people I, in the audience. You, this one is the fiction. Oh, yes. Nicely done, Rebecca. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Sorry, yeah, unfortunately. Uh, there was a, a study, mean, though. Yeah, sorry, Randy, but I won, which is <laughs> better. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> Um, so there haven't been any human trials using uh, stem cells to treat hearing loss, although there are some you know, preliminary sort of animal trials doing that. No one's done that yet. There was a recent study using um, cochlear implants to treat a certain kind of hearing loss, which was the item I morphed into the incorrect version that you heard on the show. So moving on to number three, which of course is science, the most accurate study so far of the motion of stars near our sun. Find no evidence of dark matter in our vicinity, contradicting current models. So that one is science. This doesn't mean that dark matter doesn't exist. You know, for, again, for the, the quickie primer, uh, dark matter is hypothesized to exist in order to explain the motion of stars in our galaxy. If we look you know, at how galaxies are moving, there needs to be more gravity in the galaxy than we can see with illuminated stuff like stars. Therefore, there must be dark matter in the galaxy to explain that rotation. So what these scientists did is they looked at uh, the very thorough data looking at the motion of stars in our vicinity, saying that their motion, if you model them, should also um, account for the amount of dark matter that we think should be present in the galaxy if dark matter explains the movement of the galaxy. And they found essentially no evidence gravitationally of dark matter in our vicinity. So assuming that, that those measurements are correct, of course, they always have to be vetted and reproduced, et cetera, that would mean that while there is dark matter in the galaxy, just for whatever reason, it's not present locally in the, in the amounts that our models predict it should be. So again, beautiful theory destroyed by an ugly fact, but um, this obviously is not the last word. Again, it doesn't mean that dark matter doesn't exist, but it does mean that maybe our models about where dark matter is may be inaccurate. Um, and I think that there's a great concentration of dark matter right on this stage. I, there must be. <laughs> yes, yeah. right between these ears. Everyone <laughs> All right. So um, we have two quotes today to close out the show. This one came from a listener. We get these emails all the time. This was just the most recent. The emailer uh, said to us, I am a skeptic. I am a free thinker. I discard drivel and exonerate exactitude. And I thank Perry DeAngelis. So the, the, our um, annual live show in New York is always our Perry DeAngelis Memorial Show. That's, in fact, how Nexus started, by us giving a show here to honor Perry. And so it's, it's also it's good to, to note, as we often do, that we continue to get emails from people who just found the podcast or going back through old episodes like, hey, who is this Perry guy? He's awesome. Why isn't he podcasting anymore? And of course, they discovered that he died a few years ago, unfortunately. But his legacy still lives on, and we will always remember him uh, at next. Yeah, round of applause for Perry. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. All right, Jake, finish up with the Here's quote. Here's a quote. 
This quote is from George Bernard Shaw. The power of accurate observation is commonly called cynicism by those who have not got it. George Bernard Shaw! <laughs> That's our show. Thank everyone for coming to Nexus. Enjoy the rest of the conference. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thanks everyone. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcasts, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom, or your portal of choice.